0: All right, so as we try to lay hold of Jesus' grace, there are, and particularly as we lay hold of Jesus' grace to change, to be different, and as we put off and put on, there are, for the, the next two sessions, what I want to do is talk about some things that we're moving in the direction of. The, the point of the Finally Free book is for me to give um, eight sort of gospel-centered strategies for turning the corner. So this isn't, this isn't a summary of the book. It's just a selection of two of the issues that I talk about in the book. And I'm going to try to talk them at least in, certainly in one way a little differently than I do in the book so that it's not a repeat if you've read it or if you're going to read it. But, uh, um, but the first thing that I want to talk about is using sorrow uh, to fight for purity from pornography. That sounds like an odd thing to do to use sorrow to fight for purity but I think it's biblical and I want to uh, look at that um, with you uh, in 2 Corinthians 7 2 Corinthians 7 and this is a passage that is a little strange it's it's got a message that is a weird Message on the face of it. Because the message is Paul saying, I'm happy that I made you sad. So, usually when people say that, we think they're mean. I'm happy you're sad. And we think, well, okay, you're mean. But Paul is not mean, and yet he writes to the Corinthians, and he said, I did some things that make you sad, and I am happy that I did that. And we're going to see why he was happy they were sad. In fact, in my Bible, the editors put a little note over that said, Paul's joy. And if you're just reading the note, Paul's joy, and then you start reading, you're going to be shocked to discover that what made him happy is that they got upset. Um, And how he can do that and not be mean is explained in here. And this is important because on the authority of this text, when we are struggling with porn or when we're related to someone who is or when we're helping someone who is, we need to pray that they would be sad. And we need to work towards their sorrow. Because as it turns out, it's one of the fundamental elements of change when people are forsaking their sin. And here's what Paul means. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what zeal, what longing, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Father, we want to ask for your help again as we come to look at a text that has to do with a significant problem in our churches and our lives and our culture. Father, I pray that you would create in us the kind of sorrow that makes you happy, that you create in us the kind of sorrow that leads to change. I pray that you would, as we think and consider this together, that we would not just have this kind of sorrow in our own hearts, but think about how to minister it to others. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. So sometimes things are not what they seem. Um, a friend of mine, who is uh, formerly was the director of admissions at Southern Seminary, he is uh, just as American as apple pie. His uh, parents were born in the United States. He was born in the United States. Uh, he speaks better English than I do, but his grandparents are uh, Chinese, and so he looks Chinese, and he actually went uh, to a church uh, several years ago with uh, Dr. Mueller, the president of Southern. Uh, he went as the admissions director to, uh, to be at this uh, large church where Dr. Mueller was going to be speaking, uh, and he was going to have an admissions booth for Southern out in the lobby, and um, Dr. Moeller got up and spoke and uh, when he was done, the pastor of the church came up and uh, he sees uh, Dr. Moeller sitting next to this admissions director and he says, Dr. Moeller, that was such a great sermon. And we're so thankful and we want to close our service in prayer, but I'm not going to pray. I see that you've brought a Chinaman with you. Now, just let's pause on the story there. This is not the culturally appropriate way to refer to even someone who is purported to be Chinese. But in this room full of people, he says, nonetheless, I'm just telling the story. Don't kill the messenger. Um, I see that you have brought a Chinaman with you here today. And I want to ask your Chinaman friend to come up. And pray for us in his native tongue. (laughs) So he comes up and he takes the mic and he says, dear Lord, (laughs) thanks for calling us together. Whatever, you know. And it was just, oh man, it's one of those things I wish I could have been there for, you know. He was super gracious about it. Dr. Moeller was, oh, I'm so sorry that it's okay, whatever. He was fine about it. But uh, this guy, this pastor, thought he knew what was going on because of an observation that he made, and he was very mistaken. And we can do that all the time in ministry. All the time in ministry we do that. And one of the ways that we, we legitimately do it is we can look at people who are confessing their sin. Maybe they've been caught. Maybe they've come forward and volunteered. But we look at people who are confessing their sins. And this is often a very painful thing for them to do. And there has been crying and tears and pain and a pleading to be different. And we can operate under the assumption that because there are tears and weeping, that that person's really going to be different. And uh, one of the stories that I tell that I, that I mentioned in the book is about uh, two men that I think I call Paul and, and Ryan. Um, it's not their real names, but um, uh, two real men that I knew both of them had been found to be struggling with pornography. Um, they, they got into pornography in very different ways, uh, but they each got into it. And that's a problem in and of itself, but they were also both married. And their wives discovered this problem with pornography. And each of their wives insisted um, that there was not going to be any accommodation of this, but... This was going to be a really bad deal if they did not come and meet with me. I was their pastor. And so two separate men, two separate wives, two separate situations come and meet with me individually. And both of them sat in my office and cried in their individual meetings. I mean, one of them got down on their knees at their wife's feet, burying his tear-streaked face in her lap and was pleading with her for forgiveness. It was going to be different. He was never going to do it again. One guy was screaming so loudly that some security from down the hall came in because they didn't think everything was okay in my office. Um, Both of them looked sad. But one of them changed, and the other one didn't. So I know I walked with them through a path to change, Uh, Or not change in one sense. And I know both their stories. And I watched one man change. And I watched another man not change. He's now divorced from his wife. Separated from his kids. He spent time in jail. But the point is. On that first day in my office. They both looked identical. So this poses a ministry difficulty here. Um, How are we supposed to tell the difference? When when we're looking at someone cry, when we're looking at someone plead for forgiveness in what seems to be an authentic confession of sin, how would we know if that's genuine? How would we know if the person that God has given us to help really means business about change. How would we know if our husband or our wife or our son or our mom or our dad through a tear-filled confession really means it? How would we know? How would we know if it's us? How would we know in the throes of a tear-filled confession as we're pleading for forgiveness... How do we know if it's the kind of confession that's going to really lead to change? That fellow I was talking about in the last, uh, the last talk, uh, he has sat in my living room, in my office. I've sat in his room. I told you about the hotel room. I mean, I've seen that man cry all the to every time. Every time he gets caught, he cries. Nothing's ever lasted. Nothing's ever taken hold. How do you know? Well, we have to know the answer to this question or we can't do ministry with people. And Paul answers the question. He says, I'm happy you were sad. Paul wants our repentance to be emotional. This is one thing that we need to observe just on the face of it. Paul does not here commend A repentance, a confession and forsaking of sin that is devoid of emotion. As though we make some kind of merely intellectual decision that sin is bad, Jesus is good, and so now I'm going to convert and switch from one to the other. It's not merely intellectual. The intellect is used. Your thoughts are in play. But Paul here says, I'm happy you were sad because he wants us to hate sin not just develop some reasonable conclusion that it's wrong, it is reasonable to conclude that sin is wrong. Sin will kill you. If you cover your transgressions, you will not obtain mercy. You will not prosper. So it is reasonable to conclude that, but it's not merely reasonable. It also ought to be emotional. And so the reason Paul is happy they were sad is because he wants them to change. He wants them to turn. And Paul understands that until you realize that your sin will kill you, until you realize that this is painful, you're not going to quit. Because as long as sin is enjoyable, as long as it is pleasing, remember, the assumption all through the Bible is we want good things. We want to prosper. We want mercy. We want things that make us happy. And as long as you believe and think and feel that the sin is a good thing, we won't change. And so Paul wants pain because he wants them to be different. He wants them to be holy. But he doesn't want just any kind of pain. And what he does, I remember when I read this uh, and got it. I don't remember when I read it for the first time, but I remember when I read this and got it. And I remember thinking, I don't know anybody that says anything this profound. I don't know anybody that says stuff like this. Because what Paul says is not all tears, not all sorrow, not all grief is created equal. This is very helpful in ministry. It's very helpful in marriage. It's very helpful as you live the Christian life. Just because you're sad doesn't mean anything yet. Because there's two different kinds of sorrow. And he identifies them for us. He talks about a godly grief or godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. There is a kind of sorrow that will kill you. There is a kind of sorrow that strangles the life out of you. You'll die because of it. Some people cry, and these are tears of death that will not lead to change in life and hope and peace and joy and purity. And those, those people are... People who have worldly grief. Worldly grief, worldly sorrow, is sorrow at the things of the world. That's why it's called worldly sorrow. The object of the sorrow is the things of the world. So I got caught and now I'm going to have to pay. Worldly sorrow is sad that the things of the world are going to be taken away from me. My job, my position, my reputation, my wife, my kids, my money. Worldly sorrow is sad at the loss of the things of the world. That is to say it's sad at the consequences sad because I got caught. Worldly sorrow leads to death because nothing in your heart has changed from when you sinned to when you got caught. Nothing's changed, you see. So you sin because you want goodies that the world has to offer. You want to see naked women, you want to see naked men, or whatever it is that you want. You want those things that the world has to offer, and so you take them. You steal. You try to steal prosperity. You try to steal mercy. And so you take them, and then you get caught. And now you're afraid... Or you find out that the goodies are going to be taken away. You're going to lose things you would like to keep. And so the object of sin and the object of worldly sorrow is the same. Your stuff, your comfort, your things. You have things you want that you'd like to steal in your sin. And you have things you'd like to keep that somebody's going to take in your worldly sorrow. It's the things of the world. You are no different when you're crying over your sin in worldly sorrow, than when you sinned in the first place. It's about you and what you want. It's a kind of sorrow that will lead to death. But then there's this other kind of sorrow it's godly grief or godly sorrow. Godly grief, verse 10, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So here's this other kind of sorrow, this other person crying. And that is going to lead to repentance, to a confession and a forsaking of sin. And that is going to lead to salvation. You're going to get life out of it. One person on the floor crying at his wife's feet is going to die because he doesn't want to lose his junk. And another person is crying at his feet At his wife's feet, and he's going to live. Why? It's godly grief. It's godly sorrow. The object of the grief is sorrow. Everything is different. I am broken. That I've broken God's law. I'm broken. That I've broken God's heart. I'm broken that the only person who ultimately matters and the person who always knew was offended. And I don't want to lose him. I want him. Sin grieves his heart and I want him. And I'm willing to do whatever I've got to do to keep him. That's different. The logic of sin is I want the stuff I want I want it when I want it, and I want it on the terms that I want it. Worldly grief says the same thing. But godly grief says, I want God. I don't want the worldly junk anymore. I want God. And so this leads to repentance. It leads to a forsaking. Because your motivation has really changed. That's unbelievably profound. We cannot assume that because we are sad or because somebody we know is sad that this is a good thing. It might be a bad thing. Well, now we have to ask the question, well, how do we know that? We're we're thankful to know the two categories. We're thankful to know that not all sorrow is created equal. But what do we do now that we know there's a difference? But how do we measure it? Well, this is where the Bible is even more helpful. Because after he explains the difference in verses 9 and 10, he tells us how to tell the difference in verse 11. And he gives us several categories as he unpacks what godly sorrow is. It's it's like a checklist before takeoff. He's giving us several things that we are looking for in the change process And when we see them, we're encouraged that this is godly grief that leads to life. And when we don't see them, we're concerned that this is worldly grief that leads to death. What are we looking for as we're trying to evaluate our own change and as we're trying to evaluate the change of those around us? Well, he says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Godly grief is earnest. Worldly grief is committed to change for a while. Worldly grief is very serious about making matters right for a while. Worldly grief will sign up and be devoted to any process of change that you place in front of it for a while. But then something happens. Worldly grief figures out that I'm not going to lose the stuff I thought I was going to lose. Or I can replace... The junk I lost with other junk that I also like. And I'm not, I'm not so sad anymore. My sorrow has been placated. And since it's still about you and your stuff and not about God, worldly grief quits being earnest. It doesn't last. Godly grief is still working and fighting and striving hours, weeks, months, years, decades after worldly grief threw in the towel. This was was the problem with my friend in the hotel a month ago. No earnestness. For 12, 15 years, you you tell him to stand on one leg and cluck like a chicken, he'll do it. But only for a little while. And then, hey, this is gonna be okay. Godly grief, though, is earnest. But also, what eagerness to clear yourselves. This can sound um, confusing to us because when we think of clearing ourselves, we think of like American legal drama. And when we think of clearing ourselves, we think of proving that we're innocent. But this is not about proving you're innocent because Paul's talking to people that we all know are guilty. So he's not saying clear yourself in the American legal sense, clearing yourself from guilt. He's saying clearing yourself from the sin. People are eager to clear themselves when they do what they have to do to cut off any source of temptation that's available, that's out there. This is the person who is not scared of but loves Jesus' ruthless exhortation to gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. If they cause you to sin, cut them off. It's better to live your life maimed than to go to hell working. And so godly grief is eager. You tell me what to do and I'm going to do it. I want to do whatever. If I need accountability, I'm going to take accountability. If I need to confess this to somebody, I'm going to confess this to somebody. If I need to throw out my computer, I'm going to throw out my computer. You tell me what I've got to do, and I will do it. We're looking for people, whether that person is ourself or somebody else, we're looking for people who are eager to do what they've got to do to get away from the sin because they don't want it anymore. They don't want to break God's heart. What indignation. Now, this, is, uh, this can be tricky, this anger, because um, worldly sorrow can have a kind of indignation too. The indignation, the anger of worldly sorrow, is the anger of all this stuff that I'm having to deal with that's annoying, it's the anger over getting caught. I feel annoyed that I'm having conversations that I don't want to have to have. I feel angry that my wife thinks I'm a pervert or my daughter is freaked out by me. There can be indignation for people who are overcome with worldly grief and have been caught in their sin. But the indignation of godly grief is not anger over being caught. It's anger about the sin. It's anger that I have done things that have hurt other people. It's anger at sin and how it kills and destroys. We're looking for people who are Not angry at everybody else, but angry, indignant over what sin does to relationships. And because they're indignant about the sin, they want to run away from it and to God. And that's godly sorrow. What fear? This is an interesting one too, because... um, worldly sorrow has a kind of fear too. In fact, people who are stricken with worldly sorrow are some of the most fearful people you've ever met. Because people who are overcome with worldly sorrow, they're not earnest and they have not been eager to clear themselves. They haven't been honest. They haven't come forward. They are continuing to live in the dark. They've got sin stuffed back in the shadows and they are waiting to be discovered again. They're just waiting to be found out. They're waiting to see uh, when somebody is going to come around that corner where all that stuff is hiding and find it, and so they are a nervous wreck. So there's a kind of fear that comes with worldly sorrow, but that's not the kind of fear that's in view here with godly grief. The kind of fear of godly grief is, you know. In fact, as I was thinking about uh, as I was thinking about how to talk about this in here. Um, I was thinking about, so listen, I've got three kids, right? Um, Carson, our oldest, who's 10. We have another boy, Connor, who's five. And then we have a wonderful daughter named Chloe, who's seven. And that I have kids, uh, and that one of them is a seven-year-old girl, means that the movie Frozen is a mainstay in our house. I've, uh, heard that many times uh, seen it many times this the c d is in the van all the time and look if you 're going to have to be impressed into watching a movie there 's worse ones than Frozen. not now, Carson. My 10-year-old my boy, he thinks that this is the biggest, girliest thing ever, and he rewrites all the songs so that there's warfare lyrics in them. So people are getting shot and blown up, and it's really kind of ridiculous. Um, but then I see him looking around the corner at the movie when it's on, but then I look up, and he's like... So he's, uh, it, it humors him to make it seem like he doesn't like this girly trash, but, um, but he's kind of amused by it. But this, uh, my favorite song... Uh, in My favorite character is Olaf, okay? So a lot of people know Olaf and like Olaf. And, uh, my favorite song in the movie is In Summer, all right? And uh, it starts out with him talking about how he'd like to experience summer. He's, Olaf's a snowman, by the way, for those of you without seven-year-old daughters. Uh, Olaf is a snowman uh, in this frozen tundra of the uh, frozen land. And uh, whatever the name of it's called, I can't remember. He's a snowman, he's a magical snowman, and he sings and dances, and he's funny. And, um, but all he knows is wintertime. And he's talking about how he'd just love to experience summer. He'd just love to experience a nice, warm day. And um, they ask him, you know, I'm guessing you don't know what it's like to experience heat. He says, nope, but... Sometimes I close my eyes and imagine what it'd be like when summer does come. Ah. And here's, the, here's what he says as he sings Frozen, which I won't sing. Or as he sings in summer. Don't worry, no, uh, no singing. Bees will buzz, kids will blow dandelion fuzz, and I'll be doing whatever snow does in summer. A drink in my hand, my snow up against the burning sand, probably getting gorgeously tanned in summer. I'll finally see a summer breeze blow away a winter storm and find out what happens to solid water when it gets warm. I can't wait to see what my buddies all think of me. Just imagine how much cooler I'll be in summer. And then he's... The hot and the cold are both so intense. Put them together, it just makes sense. Winter's a great time to stay in and cuddle, but put me in summer and I'll be a happy snowman. That's right. When life gets rough, I like to hold on to my dream, just relaxing in the summer sun and letting off steam. Oh, the sky will be blue and you guys will be there too. When I finally do what frozen things do in summer. Now, if Olaf gets what he wants, he's going to die, right? But he has no idea. He has no idea that this thing that he wants, he's talking about having a drink in his hand, he will be the drink in someone's hand if he gets what he wants. And if he could grasp for a moment what he really is after, it would send a shudder up his already frozen spine. That is the fear of 2 Corinthians 7. It is fear that is mingled with mercy. That your awareness of what God has spared you from. That if you had received what you believed you most wanted, it would have killed you. Just the way summer will kill Olaf. Your sin will kill you. But it's mingled with mercy because God spared you from it. Listen, it sends a shiver up my spine when I think about that man in that hotel room. Look, I am I, a sinful man. You are sinful people. Everybody in this room knows what it's like to sin sexually. Everybody. You don't have to look at porn. Everybody knows what it is to sin sexually because all of us love sexual things that God hates sometimes. And all of us sometimes hate sexual things that God loves. It's a question of what it is. It's not a question of whether. And I could be in that hotel room. It could have been me with the beard and the oily hair and the pizza boxes everywhere. Surrounded in cigarette butts and filth. It could have been me. If, I mean, you you take Heath Lambert back to when I was 18. Um, and God spared me from the hotel room. I mean, he did. And in some sense, he spared all of us from that hotel room. Different problems, different consequences for the different problems. But this is the fear of godly sorrow. It's a fear that requires you to say, thank you. Thank you, God, that I didn't get what I thought I most wanted. What longing and zeal. I'm putting this together because I think Paul puts it together in verse 7. He says, not only this, by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, there has been relational complications between Paul and the Corinthians. if you know anything about what 's happening in the corinthian correspondence they 've been at odds at times, and Paul has had to say some things that were uh, strong, some things that made them sad. Um, And there has been a a bit of a cleavage in their relationship. And Paul is saying that he's glad to know of their longing and their zeal for him. He's glad to know of the intensity of their desire to be restored in relationship. And he's just said that a few verses earlier, and I don't think we're supposed to forget about it here. And so I think when he's talking about longing and zeal in verse 11, he's talking about the same thing as he was in verse 7. And that is a longing and a zeal for restored relationships. Godly sorrow is marked by a longing zeal for restored relationship. I want what has been damaged legitimately to be restored. Worldly sorrow says, "Oh, I don't have to. I don't have to confess to her, do I? Let's, let's let, let's let sleeping dogs lie. You just forget about that." Godly sorrow. He says, I have a longing and a zeal to be restored in my relationships that have been broken. And I'm going to fight for them. He says, what longing and what zeal and what punishment. This sounds the weirdest one to us. What punishment. Godly sorrow is marked by punishment. And what does that mean? What it means is, and this is right at the heart of the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Because remember, worldly grief is upset that it got caught. Worldly grief is upset about consequences. Godly grief, on the other hand, embraces the consequences. Not because they're fun. You don't have to love pain to do this. You don't have to think it's awesome for your wife to be upset with you. Or you don't have to think it's awesome to be on the couch for a few nights. You don't have to think it's awesome to lose your job. You're not supposed to love pain. But there is an embrace that the consequences from my sin are good and right. And they are what I have coming to me. They're going to be hard. They will be unpleasant. That's the way consequences work. That's the promise of the Bible. If you conceal your transgressions, you will not prosper. So this is proof that that's true. You don't have to love pain, but you do have to accept um, that these consequences are legitimate. And uh, one of the stories that I tell in the book is of a of a man that I had counseled who had looked at uh, illegal pornography and he got arrested for it. And um, he came to our church for counseling with this as the case was unfolding and he got an attorney and what they discovered was that the arresting officers made mistakes Um, and because of those mistakes almost everything they had collected was not going to be admissible in court and so the attorney said all you have to do is plead not guilty and this is going to go away. And so this guy comes and there was me and a couple other elders in the room and he's reporting that uh, this is great news that he's going to be able to plead not guilty and get off. And weren't we excited? And I asked him, do you want to die? Which he did not. <laughs> but after he stared at me, looking at me funny, I read him this passage that worldly sorrow... Leads to death. And the way you can be certain that you're not leading, you don't have a kind of sorrow that's going to kill you is when when you have a kind of sorrow that embraces consequences. And so the question is not, how can you plead to get out of this? But is the accusation true? Did you possess... This illegal pornography. And the answer was yes. I possessed it. Well, so then, friend, you're not allowed to tell a lie in a court of law and say not guilty to get out of the consequence. That will be proof that you have a kind of sorrow that is not going to lead to life and change. And God bless him. He didn't plead not guilty. He pled guilty. And actually, it still went away because of another reason. But, uh, um Um, but he was willing to take the consequences because he wanted life. You, You show me somebody who's trying to wiggle away from consequences, I'll show you a person who a million to one is dying of worldly sorrow. It doesn't mean you love consequences. It doesn't mean there's no tears. It doesn't mean you don't come and say, I need help because this is going to be one of the hardest things I've ever done. That's fine. Pain's not fun. Consequences aren't fun. But we're not allowed to lie and squirm to get away from it. And then finally, it says, at every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now, what does this mean? Because as we talked about before, I thought we were talking about somebody who was actually really, truly guilty. But now, Paul is saying they proved themselves innocent in the matter. So what is this? Well, he doesn't mean that they were innocent of the sin He means that at every point they have proved themselves innocent of godly sorrow, or of worldly sorrow, excuse me. You're not innocent of the sin, you're innocent of possessing worldly sorrow at every point. And so what he's saying is these things go together. We don't pick and choose. We don't say, well, um, I'm really earnest, but I'm avoiding consequences. Or I accepted the consequences, but I'm not earnest. These things go together at every point. We are using these things to evaluate ourselves and others about whether our sorrow is of the worldly stripe that kills or the godly stripe that brings to life. And so this is what we're doing. And by the way, I mean, we're talking, we're talking about this in the context of pornography, but this is a passage that is not uh, limited to application to pornography. This is about every sin. I mean, people say all the time, how can I know if this person's changing? How can I know what's happened in this person's life? Well, this is why 2 Corinthians 7 is in the Bible. This helps us to know who we're dealing with. And it helps us to know over the long haul. You can't, here's the reality. You can't know when that person's in your office crying. You can't know when you're blowing your nose after you've cried. You can't know immediately right then what kind of sorrow you've got. It's going to take time. And over time, in the context of your brothers and sisters in church, you're going to have to demonstrate at every point that you are innocent of worldly sorrow. And that means we have to come back to what we've said several times already. How are you going to do that? When somebody is looking at porn, whether that's you or somebody you're helping, there are a couple of different ways that you can get off the rails with regard to this sorrow issue. First of all, you cannot be sad. That's bad. Somebody who loves to sin, who loves to look at porn, this is a blast, I'm never quitting. That's a big problem. They're not gonna change. They have not realized that when you conceal your transgressions, you don't prosper. You got to fix that. But then another way you get off the rails is you can have somebody who's really sad, but they're sad because they're losing their stuff. They have worldly sorrow and it it gets demonstrated over and over and over again. You got to fix that because they're sad, but they're sad in a way that's going to kill them. How do you fix it? How do you fix it when somebody loves their sin and isn't sad or is sad but they're sad because of the consequences and not because God was offended? Well, this is where we need what we saw Paul talk about in Romans 6 and what we saw talk about in Colossians 3. We need grace. We We need to call people to turn from their sin to Christ. And we need to tell them that if they would confess their absence of sorrow and ask Jesus for his grace to be sad for offending him, Jesus loves to answer those prayers when they're prayed in faith. And if we suspect that they are sad for the wrong reason, we'd say something like, you know, man, I love you and I want to try to help you. But the Bible says here that if you're sad in a good way, you're supposed to be eager to clear yourself. You're supposed to do whatever you've got to do to get away from this sin, and I see you not doing that. What are we supposed to do when someone feels defeated by that analysis? We can say, you can't make yourself be eager to clear yourself from sin, but we know somebody who can. He's from Nazareth. His name's Jesus. And if you would ask him to forgive you for your lack of eagerness to clear yourself and for grace to fight to put off sin, Jesus loves to answer those prayers when they're prayed in faith. This is one of the most profound teachings in the Bible. You've got to be sad when you sin, but it's not good enough to be sad. You've got to be sad in the right way. And how are you supposed to identify that? Well, Paul tells us. You're earnest. You're eager to clear yourself, you're indignant, you're fearful, you've longing and zeal, you're embracing the punishment. and at every point, you prove yourselves innocent in the matter. And when you think that through and you are aware that you can't do it on your own, then you're just where you need to be and you need to call out in faith to your Savior who knows how to bring this about. I think we're going to break and uh, pray and uh, talk about lunch and other things. So let me pray. Father in heaven. We're so thankful for the grace of Jesus Christ that would reveal such important truth to us. And Father, I pray, I pray for all of us in here that you would give us godly sorrow over our sin. That you'd protect us from callousness that isn't upset about sin. That you'd protect us from confusion that's upset in the wrong way about sin. Father, we confess that we don't have it in ourselves to fix this, and so would you do it for us by the grace of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's
1: good stuff. Heavy stuff, good stuff, freeing stuff. I apologize to you that I uh, have been amiss by not introducing myself. My name is Brian Fannin. I serve as the small groups pastor here at Grace Fellowship, and um, I am uh, truly excited about all the things that you're going to get to experience. Not only uh, this afternoon with Heath, got one more session, but uh, tonight and uh, through the weekend. So, there's a couple of things uh, that I want to give you instructions about. Number one, I'm going to introduce you to David Michael, and David Michael is wearing. Come down here, David. David Michael is uh, part of our team, helps me and Bob Greenwood, who's a counseling pastor. David Greenwood, uh, Bob, Dave, no, sorry. David Michael is wearing his red shirt today, all right? So the, he ordered red shirts for us, and you see, uh, just like the rest of us, uh, we don't always get things exactly right. Somebody didn't get something right. So what you're going to do while you're here this weekend and as you come back, you're going to look for people with this shirt on. If you need assistance in any way, so if you need to know directions to the nearest doctor, if you need just some recommendations uh, or guidance, this is the guy to see. And after 12:30 today, David and somebody else from the team will go ahead and get you your folder and get you registered and checked in. That happens going to happen in two places downstairs at the foot of the stairs here there is a registration table for fundamentals. So if you've registered for your first time in this, that's where you'll go. For advanced, it is in the uh, lobby in the front. So the hallways downstairs just kind of run like a, a circle. If you walk down the hallway, there is a registration table in the front. So after 1230, you can uh, register there. you have anything else about that? Okay, one more thing. So there's two books uh, that Dr. Lambert uh, I'd, I'd asked him because sometimes we want to know what what are the kind of things that's impacted you that you've read. Uh, this particular little book uh, we've used here at Grace a whole bunch, uh, the Cross Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. It is a fantastic book. It will point your eyes back to uh, to Jesus in all things. The second one that he suggested was Killing Sin Habits by Doctor Stuart Scott and. Uh, that also is available in the Resource Center. If you want to just glance at these, we put some copies in here where you'll pick up your lunch. Um, and if you want to buy it with cash, you can there, or later today, or through the weekend, they are available in the Resource Center. So, David, I'm going to let you give them directions for lunch, and you pray with them. And
2: Yeah, so we've got uh, sandwiches for you all from Pot Valley. I don't know if you've ever had those before, uh, but they're really good. So there's a couple different varieties uh, so you just go out these doors and make two lines, and then there are tables set up in the classrooms over over that way. So I think you'll understand what to do. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we can eat. Lord, uh, thank you uh, for feeding our souls and just the reminder that we have every day of how much we um, how much how much need we are in. Uh, that we need your word uh, to feed us. Thank you for truth. Thank you for these things that guide us and help us to know uh, who you are. Help us to know our place before you and uh, how desperate we are for Jesus and what he has done for us. Uh, just continue to bless us the rest of this day. Uh, open our hearts, open our, our eyes to be able to see uh, what you have for us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, let's eat. Oh. Oh. Sorry, Uh, we have an hour for lunch, Uh, so there's plenty of time to eat. And then uh, if you want to go to the Resource Center or register uh, for this evening, you'll have time for that. So we'll meet back here at 1 o'clock. broken often feel